If you like listening to The Front Lounge, please visit us at congos.com slash podcast, as well as on Instagram at The Front Lounge and Twitter at underscore The Front Lounge. Towards the end of this podcast, you'll notice some minor audio issues on a couple of our microphones. Apologies for that. We will be buying some new equipment for the next one. Hello and welcome again to The Front Lounge with Congos. We are here with Johnny Baxter Marlowe. Uh, he's our tour photographer, or he's one of the main. No, it's, tour. it's Jonathan David Baxter Marlowe. Is that true? Yes, absolutely. I forgot. Yeah, yeah, Please, yeah. with the four names. <laughs> right, right. I mean, so you've eliminated yourself from being a director because directors max out at three names. I think you can still be a writer, but you have to abbreviate the first You'll be a seventh two. wave yeah. director. The next, the next bunch are going to be four named. You have to be. You have to be. Jonathan D.B. Marlowe. Maybe I could just be D.B. Marlowe. <laughs> D.B. Marlowe, yeah. yeah. Or what, on, uh, J.D. J.D. Baxter. J.D. <laughs> like I just Baxter. remember, you know, when you come on tour, oh, Jonathan Marlowe, Johnny Marley, Marlowe, a lot of you know him as a tour photographer. He's been out with us for a long time. He's also a very well-working photographer here in Los Angeles. He has shot people... Can I see those notes so that I can list the celebrities he's shot? <laughs> They're not that memorable. Nina Dodbreff, William H. Macy, Charlotte McKinney, Deborah Ann Wall, Adam Scott, a bunch of people you've seen in movies and TV and many more that I didn't list. I feel so, like this was, bottom all, line this is was all for Rogue recently, like in the last couple of months, right? Those names right there? Uh, actually, no, not all of them. There was uh, a couple for uh, InStyle Magazine, uh, Vulcan Magazine, so I've, I've branched out. <laughs> bottom line is we're, st- we're going to stop puffing him up now. He's a legit photographer. He several, also comes on tour with us. Several bands that will go unnamed have stolen his photos and posted them on Instagram. <laughs> you know who you are. <laughs> Without crediting, yeah. I actually have to interrupt this because I'm ordering Indian food and I need Johnny's uh, order. Chicken tikka masala, mild? <clears throat> <laughs> yes. Very mild. Uh, right. For anybody who really wants to know i have a sort of chicken thing it's kind of my thing it's like <laughs> even starting to look slightly like one chickens on <laughs> planet earth are terrified of marlo it's the only thing he eats i feel like i'm the only one doing my part to take down the chicken population <laughs> well, when you live together for months in a bus like we have done you get to know everybody's habits including their eating habits and it got to the point where the food order sheet would come around during sound check or whatever you know where you you write down what you want for lunch and Johnny's would just be pre-filled in. It was just like whatever menu it was, it was the chicken option. And we didn't have to ask him anymore. That's how predictable he became. God, I really wanted to fight. I, I, did, I really wanted to not believe that that was the case, but it's just every single time. And then the, 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 like the waves of laughter that come after I write the first C. <laughs> By the way, let's call him Marlo. So there's no confusion between who, which Johnny we're talking about. Oh, that's because right. as everyone knows now... We have Johnny Congos and Johnny Marlowe. Let's talk a little bit about how we met Johnny Marlowe. Is, is this breaking news? Yeah, this is our breaking news. Oh, this is breaking news. Uh, should I do it or you want to do it? Oh, this is a good... Oh, shit. I, had, pretty I good just had to think of this. Yeah, we were playing a show in Sedona for the Sedona Film oh, Festival. It was one of our first shows. It was our first show out of town, out of Phoenix. Right, yeah, that's right. And... Um, and then we, after that, we were on our way to the Viper Room. But at that Sedona Film Festival show, this older couple came up to us, and they really dug the set, and they got like they really got it musically. And they were like, "Man, that's awesome! You got to meet our son." 
uh, he's in LA and we said, Oh, we're on our way to LA. So we got to know them. Uh, uh, Connie and Andrew. Yeah. Connie and Baxter Marlowe. And she, yeah, you didn't say who they were. Did you? No, you didn't. You didn't. Yeah. You didn't say that his parents. I did say that. Didn't I? We just now, just now. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, from my per- parents, from my perspective, it was uh, it was a little bit different because they, they they approached you guys and you're like, who are these? Who are these Sedona people? Right. They came from a different dimension. Exactly. They actually, they actually oh, walked they out of the, the trust frequency yeah. and, and landed <laughs> at a gig in uh, Sedona. But you know, when your mother comes to you and is like, "Oh, Johnny, I met." the nicest boys and you are just gonna love their music it's so good i was like uh-huh <laughs> i'm sure it's great mom but you need to spend a little time with your mom so i was like i'll go to a show that you thought was awesome <laughs> <laughs> well danny was being kind of kind it was the same thing from our perspective i mean to put it in to put it in perspective when you're on the road and even though this is one of our first shows out we played a lot of shows at home when someone comes up to you after a show and says you have to be meet my son or meet my daughter like your first your first response in your head is like no no i really i really don't have to meet anyone you want to introduce me to really don't (laughs) but then so so we came to la we did a gig at the viper room and uh, um johnny's mother uh brought him and some of his friends to our show we got them on the guest list dropped them off at nine said be here by 10 yeah and at that point i was in my er early 20s i believe just I wasn't in high school or anything. <laughs> Let's put it this way: you didn't look as cool as you did now. Nice. It was it For was sure. 2007 that we're talking about, though. None, none of us looked as cool. Not that we look cool, but we looked even less cool ten years That's ago. That's insane that we've all known each other since 2007. That actually kind of freaks me out. It doesn't feel longer than but, 20 years. Uh, that Viper Room show really sold me, guys. <laughs> Just by the way, <laughs> yeah. How was- many people were there? Do you remember? It couldn't have been more. Hey, Marla, put the mic up to your it face. It couldn't have been more than 15 or 20, right? Of our own people? Of probably your not. people? I think no. it was more. It was closer to 50 or 60. I mean, it was. Viper Room's a tiny room. Um, it felt like there were some people there. It, wasn't, it certainly was not packed, but. No, well, all right. Maybe I'm not, I'm not trying to like dumb it down or anything, but like I've seen so many shows there. But the, I do remember you guys were playing your first album, and mm-hmm. the first song that I remember being like. It was, yeah. a, it was a pretty star studded audience though because we were opening up for chris stills really? that was yeah and steven, uh, stills, steven stills was really? there yeah <laughs> jacob dylan was there it was like uh nicholas cage's dylan. son oh but he nicholas cage's son was at one of those yeah i don't he, know if that was the first one or not but it was one of them was saying they you got to meet so-and-so i my or my mom i got my mom's got the best contact i'm telling you moms are the best pr i've never like yeah <laughs> it, it was very bizarre i've never heard somebody like as one of the things they tout about themselves as having the best contacts. Um, I, you, we must have done 10 shows at the Viper Room before, you know, during that period where we drive out to LA and each time you're hoping somebody important is going to see you. And our, we would hand out CDs and flyers and just trying to get anything going. And I remember we had CDs one night. I think it was one of the nights you were there. And uh, Jonah Hill was like, that super bad had just come out or something. And Dad's like, it's Jonah Hill. And he ran up and gave him a CD. And he just goes, nah, thanks, man. <laughs> <laughs> really? I, I, I mean, it was, uh, this was back when CDs existed, yeah. And I did, yeah, I ran into him. He was trying to get into the Roxy. Not in retrospect, that's right. He was, he was trying to skip the line at the Roxy. And I said, hey, man. And we were just fucking paper, like trying to paper. Well, he wasn't huge at that point either. Like, Superbad was what really right, got yeah, yeah, huge. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you just... Yeah. It, it was right, uh, right when that movie was coming out. And now I, like, 
initially I was like, man, who doesn't want a free CD? And, and now I'm like, any nobody wants a fucking free CD. I that's literally, I would yeah, rather every, have anything. Yeah, I don't want anything that yeah. you're about to give me on the street, you fucking weirdo. That's what, <laughs> One of those nights was uh, we went there, and the night before us, One Republic was playing right as Apologize was blowing up. Uh, mm. You know, before the Timbaland version came out, we watched them. We went in the night before, watched them, and we tried to give out our CDs yeah. that night because there were actually a ton of like industry people there because they were all excited because One Republic was about to. They break. were licking their chops. You yeah, could, like, there was that vibe. Of, Man, this thing is fucking something. And they salivating just, in the background. <laughs> absolutely, I remember Ryan Tedder walked out, and they were really you know they're a great band. They and they were great back then, and you could just see the industry people just being like they were they were fucking salivating. Yeah, yeah. they were like we want this guy. Yeah. <laughs> It's definitely a character-building experience walking up and down Sunset Boulevard oh trying to give out your CD to L.A. people. It's, you know, it's, it's a humbling experience, yeah. I'm assuming. I feel like, no, it didn't but work. I feel I'm, like, not, I'm not humble. <laughs> I feel like 90% of the time it's actually not worthwhile and it's counterproductive. You know, oh, yeah. If we you're the guy that. handing out the CD or the card, there's an immediate psychological thing that happens where the person receiving is like, okay, I'm going to throw this away. You know, like there's just something about the magnetism of of an event where you're like, please listen to this. And they're like, nope. Well, because I think in L.A. specifically, everybody wants to be going to the dope party. Like they want to be like, you're already throwing the dope party. They don't want to like throw it themselves. (laughs) So they want to be like, oh, you've already got something sick going on. Like, yeah, I want to be part of that. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm so busy right now. I just I don't even have time for this conversation. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm sorry. Marlo, really, you've learned so much about L.A. because you're not originally from here, right? You're from Aspen. No, I grew up in Aspen, Colorado, slash in uh, Mexico with my with my famous, infamous mother. Um, <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely we'll so, get into more but stories I, about I, that. I've lived here for 12 years, and uh, I've actually known you guys probably the majority of that. But um, it's an interesting place. I mean, you kind of have to get the lay of the land to survive. I really like the way you put it. You know, you spent, what, probably the first three, four years trying to kind of make it as an actor and a singer. And um, at the point that you decided to really get serious about photography, you said, L.A. is a gold rush and everybody's coming here looking for gold. I'm just going to try and sell some fucking shovels. Yeah, (laughs) that's exactly. I actually had a realization that and I... I was just like, it is 100% the gold rush of our generation. And the people who make all the money are for sure the people selling the picks and shovels. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is it you help people realize that this is not really what they want to do? Yeah, I give people the tools to uh, realize this isn't what they want to do anymore. <laughs> What's Johnny's clients just like keep dropping like flies. Like, this, this is what you think? I'm not letting you f- photograph me. <laughs> okay, so do you have any video that we can pry out of your cold, dead hands of you acting? Uh, that we can shit. force you to throw up on social media or anything oh, like that, God. or like a bad headshot or something like that. I do. I have a. I have a. a, a I have a. It was a pretty good. You know, I was. I was cute back in <laughs> when I was twenty-two. Not now. <laughs> but um, uh, I've got. So embarrassing. Careful what you say because we're going to get this out. out oh, of okay. You. Then I definitely won't say that. Um, <laughs> I. I'll just be uh, very vague. I did a, some musical theater over in Glendale for the uh, for the Blue Hairs. <laughs> they were all sleeping in the front row. It's pretty much only people over sixty five. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I was uh, in Footloose. Oh, oh shit! I don't think I've heard that. I was amazing. Very well received by the sleeping you Dora Kevin, in the front row. <laughs> you were Kevin Chicken instead of Kevin Bacon. I, I, I didn't. I wasn't playing. 
Kevin Bacon's part. I was chorus. Okay. Well, I don't know what that means. It's so embarrassing. It's so embarrassing. If we can't get the footage from you, I definitely think we can get it from Connie Baxter Marlowe. I'll pay you (laughs) to do that. So what have you been up to recently? Obviously not doing musical theater. Uh, So I, uh, I quit acting. <laughs> almost instantly after I studied it uh, because I picked up a camera and I was like, I told, because my dad was like, well, you're not going to be an actor anymore? I was like, I think I fell in love with another woman. She's far more lucrative. <laughs> <laughs> well, your dad was a photographer, right? But yeah, my dad is a, he was a pretty, or is a pretty famous photographer. He worked for um, a number of magazines and so I worked for him when I was a kid and then I... I swore I was never going to be a photographer. I think when I was 14, I was like, hell no. I already look enough like, like exactly like him. I'm not going to have the same job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then... All salmon return upstream, yeah. They certainly do. We just become more and more like our parents. Like you guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then I just, couldn't, I just couldn't stay away from it. And um, I hadn't done a ton of big stuff by the time you guys asked me to shoot for you, by the way. Like, I'd been... I'd opened my studio. Yeah, we launched was, your career, I know. Yeah, you basically <laughs> launched my career. You're the only reason I'm... I told you what a shutter speed was. <laughs> you did. And F-stop. He's like, what the hell is this fuck-stop? <laughs> Danny did teach me how to uh, do a backup, so... <laughs> <laughs> mean like over a hard drive? No, yeah. it, was yeah, pretty, it was pretty apparent when you, that you, you had a natural of our Of our photographers, Marlo is in the middle, leaning towards the good side of like diligent about backing up. We've had a bunch of videographers and photographers out on the road with us, and they range from like utter whirlwind chaos where you're lucky if a card ever arrives mm. with photos on it. Who's that? We won't mention his name. <laughs> he's definitely a guest, though. When we do talk about him, he's definitely a guest. Uh, yeah. And then on the other end, there are people that are actually super organized. Marlo's pretty... You're, I would, can we you talk about it? I was up there. You're Marlo, well organized. You just can't spell. You're like... <laughs> that's on my website. What? That's in my bio. <laughs> are you serious that you can't spell? Yeah. And you, then I purposefully misspelled embarrassing (laughs) (laughs) well that's the first time you've purposely misspelled something (laughs) marlo's a true artiste because he you can definitely tell in his photographs there's an aesthetic there's an there's something that he puts into it he's not just capturing a moment and i think that mentality is is a either a plus or minus column in the organizational aspect of art because you you have to have some organization and until I, I don't know if you have an assistant yet but a lot of phot- big photographers have assistants where they don't think about that shit and somebody backs it up or they do the hard drive or they even you know grab their lens out of their bag and give it to them that that sort of stuff a so. lot of photographers i know even they like i mean they've, they've put in the time so they don't they walk onto set and their assistants have set up all their lights they know exactly where they're supposed to do it they and then they just put out their hand and this actually happened to me the other day guys <laughs> I've made it. <laughs> I walked onto set. My shit was up, and I I put out my hand, and my assistant put the camera in it. <laughs> I was like, "Holy shit!" So this is amazing. <laughs> you so to, if you, you were to come back on tour with us, who would who out of our crew would be the one to hand you the camera? <laughs> Chris, I would make Chris do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I feel like everybody else would just there would just be no. He, he might do it though. I think no, Chris is the person who would tell you to go fuck yourself because we were on tour. This is a great one. <laughs> we were on tour once, and Jesse, you tell a story actually about the the throat oh, yeah. spray. Okay, so <laughs> um, we talked about the Kings of Leon tour on one of, one of these podcasts. Well, 
you know, the Kings of Leon were the perfect shining example of a band that's made it. I mean, just the kind of amenities on that tour and the backstage facilities and, and you know, the size. They had 50 touring crew. So, um, you know, if you if you want to make it as a rock band, that to us was like, oh, shit, you know, this is this is what we want to do. Um, in some aspects, you know, you could argue they took it a little too far. Like Nathan, the drummer, you know, his drum tech, if, if his, he was having throat issues, he would have his drum <laughs> tech spray throat spray into his mouth during the middle of a song, which is not as crazy as it sounds. You got, and as a drummer, <laughs> both your fucking hands are occupied. You can't do anything in the middle of a, you can't drop a stick and like take a drink or whatever, or like, you know, if you're sick and your throat's fucked up. So anyway, um, Fast forward to uh, our Europe tour where we had Matt, the guy we talked about, who got married and met his wife on tour with us. Uh, he was doing merch, and he also did some backline tech on stage. So we told him the story, like, uh, you know, this is this is what they did for Kings of Leon. And Dylan's like, so, like, I, I'm, my throat's a bit dry. Like, on, you know, this song, could you come up and just spray some of this in my mouth? He's like, okay, so now, what, where is that in the set list? Is that number three? <laughs> and he's totally ready for it. And Dylan's like, I'm just fucking with you. Same story. Go to Chris. Hey, Chris, my throat's kind of dry. Can you come on stage and with this throat spray? Before he even finishes the scene, he goes, go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> that is, I mean, that's a perfect representation of both of those dudes. Yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. Did they, they, Matt, uh, Matt had the three drinks on his amps with different colored straws. Uh, the guitar player from Kings of Leon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, <laughs> those he, guys are the true, they're the real deal. Like, they they managed to put on a good show. I saw one of them answer a phone call in the middle of the fucking show. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. And they still put on a great show. They just don't give a shit about... And they just truly don't give a shit. And it comes off as a positive thing, you know? Yeah. If you're, maybe if you're, like, a super fan and you wanted them to, like, specifically that address tour, your city or something, that'd be That annoying. tour was really just infamous in our whole touring career, though, because we still talk about it. I know. Even, like, yeah. the meal preparation. And <laughs> the Young the Giant guys were there, too. And they were like... This is insane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I, we 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 kind of cover this, but it's always fun to talk about. The, the the catering was amazing. This amazing spread. They had these chefs traveling, but what we'd left out the last time was that that was just the chef for the support bands and the crew. The Kings of Leon had their own. chef. Oh, there was two. They're, they had their own chef that only cooked for the band. <laughs> <laughs> they would just literally go around city to city and poach chefs from like their favorite restaurants. Like, do you want to come out on the road? For a month and a half and cook for us. We should just start elaborating this story, like embellishing and saying they had these guys, the Kings of Leon guys, had their own fucking traveling aquaponic garden in one of the semi trucks. They were growing their own food. There was a fluffer for for everybody on the crew. (laughs) I think you're thinking of a different set here, Johnny. Whatever. I've just always wanted to be on one of those. Uh, but I remember that I remember that feeling that you were talking about having a you know having the camera being put in your hand. It's like the first time we ever got a crew um, more than Mo because when we just had Mo, we were still setting up uh, with Mo. But the first time you get more than that one crew member and you walk on the stage and all your stuff is set up, it's 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 and surreal. Then and then you when you're done, you walk off stage. It was gotten very used to it now, and now now we refuse to do <laughs> a, a lot of stuff. But it's it's one of the most amazing good, feelings. It was a good month or two where I just couldn't let go like I, I still wanted to roll cables up after I didn't want to but I just felt like I had to roll cables up because it feels like part of the job and it is a part of the job in the beginning but what and we may learned, be part of the job again in the future <laughs> what, <laughs> we, <laughs> what we learned I think was that 
there's so much other shit that we had to take care of. You know, once once you have a radio interview and then you've got press and then you've got meet and greets and all this stuff, you know, it's it's not hard labor, but it takes up so much fucking time. You don't literally don't have time to pack up your own gear. But no. it's an interesting thing. Like, I guarantee you, there if the, at that shoot where you first got your ham, your camera put in your hand, if there were any other people on the shoot that had never worked with you before, like their immediate memory now of you is. Oh, he's a photographer that gets his camera put in his hand. Right. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? So like now they're going to talk about like, oh, I was on this shoot with Johnny Marlowe and he gets like he's in this like, new tier of people. He's, Whereas the same thing like people look at us. If we went out on stage now and did our own gear, which is funny because behind the scenes we're still doing it and fixing oh, yeah. it all. But like if you went out on stage, it would just change the whole perception of you. Uh, of how people think about it. Well, Do you find absolutely. that it filters into the rest of your life? You know, when, like, if you if you uh, are swipe too much stuff on your phone, you try to, like, turn a physical... Have you ever done that? Have you double-clicked something physical on a magazine? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> just like, you're like, why you're isn't like, this liking? Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> uh, I wonder, like, do you just put your hand out and wait for things to be oh, hand- in other areas of life? Yeah. No, because I'm so, I'm so... It's literally, like, one or two times that that's happened. But I've also noticed that... You know, that that thing happening is so cool because just like you guys rolling up cables or setting your own gear, your attention is is so needed elsewhere. And as beginning artists, we spread ourselves so thin that these jobs aren't being done correctly. And so, like, when you can focus entirely, when you're not having to do some of those other tasks, like, I can sit there actually giving the talent the attention they needed or like i can go and uh liaison between the stylist makeup artist talent and everybody who it's like so you know my attention is is it was wasted well you've said you've said even when the last time we were hanging out talking about this like a big part of your job as a photographer now is beyond the technical aspects of taking a photo you're creating an environment and a space where the person you're shooting feels comfortable or feels whatever you're trying to get out of them and like you become a bit of a psychotherapist babysitter comedian comedian whatever you need to get out of the person i would say that's true with you guys too i mean you guys create a total vibe and you need somebody people have paid to be there like you guys need to create a, a a really special thing that happens on there and i think your attention is definitely best like put on that if you're if you're wrapping up cables that's why backstage right before we go on now i just put my hand out and magically a coconut water appears (laughs) in there and and the show it's for the fans i mean the show has has to be good it's true if i don't get my coconut water in my hand do you know how many times i've walked off stage and just dropped my accordion (laughs) on to me (laughs) and to think it just comes from a you know, pure altruism. That's Jesse in all doesn't of us, have yeah. a lubed larynx with <laughs> coconut. <laughs> lubed larynx. That is Apple's that's, new operating oh, system. The, that's the new al- name of our new album. <laughs> lubed larynx. So, what else have you guys been up to? Hiking. Just lubing my larynx. Guys, I saw um, Danny posted a cool sunset picture. That's correct. Where do you um, hike? Yeah, I broke right now, my Danny. black and white red theme. We went hiking at Runyon. Canyon. And so you guys have you guys have really done it then. Oh huh? yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, we we're full some, LA. Maybe other people have uh, some observations, but that is one of the strangest places to hike, just in terms of people watching. Mm. It's one of the best people watching uh, you can do in the city. It's like 
yesterday we saw a guy hiking in shorts, tank top, and a large scarf. And it's, it's <laughs> a 75 degrees out, you know. He's just wearing this large scarf for, for fashion. And then couples, two- you see couples that are like matching and they, they wear the same perfume and cologne and they usually blast music out of a little, you know, a, a, a speaker a that they carry. Matching pit bulls too. Yeah, they'll, they'll put their speaker on a dog and they'll yeah, annoy the I shit do. out of their fucking dog. I see a regular couple there that goes on their runs and they they look identical but they also they strap a um a boombox to their dog and blast music like right by his ear and then they for everyone else to hear as they're running up the mountain Are i don't want to get marlo i don't want to get marlo started but where i go hiking which is east easterly oh. of there oh, yeah. on, on griffith <laughs> park much more normal people. Mm. I mean, it, it, they, there's, a, there's a difference. For anybody that doesn't live here, there's a, uh, there's a divide in Los Angeles, and it's called Western. <laughs> Western <laughs> Avenue. Don't go west of Western Avenue. Unless you're going to go west of La Siena or... or uh, I guess, yeah, exactly. There's just this really long stripe in between. It's the shadow two. in The Lion People, King. Th- all right, I think so it's hysterical it's that Marlo thinks that the dead zone between Western and La Siena <laughs> is like a dead zone. It's probably got what... 2.3 million people in there like some of the none of whom Marla will associate with where where Danny and Dylan went today people literally put on a full face of makeup right. and get a yeah. blowout to go hiking there it is like a, it yeah, is it's it's literally event. like a bar it's where to, you're gonna get discovered you know you're yeah. gonna get your big part hiking up Runyon oh Canyon. you'll get a big part a, a lot of people <laughs> like stretch right at the entrance so you have to walk by people stretching and then there's like, like yoga at the. Ugh. It, well, it's not that bad, but I think the, what tops the list on my running experience is that one day there was just blooming Australians everywhere, and they're everywhere in Los yeah, Angeles, Los especially Runyon, blooming Australians. Mike, and we we hiking down the mountain, and I heard these three Australians. One of them was was hiking in flip flops, which is typical fearless Australian way of doing things. There's, and no this bloody, guy, there's no bloody spiders that can kill me here. Ah, well, this ground is soft here in America, isn't it? Um, they were hiking down the mountain. They said, uh. You know, oh, I love the kombucha aisle. That's what the fucking guy said. Yeah, and that's when I realized I'd arrived in Los there's Angeles. There's a whole fridge for kombucha, and you have to show your ID because there's 0.04% You really alcohol. have to show your ID yeah. for that? If you want the original kombucha. Yeah. <laughs> I, can't, I, mean, I can't hear the so word I've kombucha heard. other than in an Australian accent. So, so we generally have a rule on this podcast that we let things go. And we don't stop things, but I r- think we should stop talking about LA b- <laughs> before everyone switches off this podcast. And we should move on to uh, St. Paul, Minneapolis. Yeah, no, we should move on to music. Let's and do it. This week, we're going to talk about a couple things, but one of the guys we wanted to talk about that we've all really gotten into, and I, I don't know if any of us knew about it before um, Eastbound and Down, is a guy called Freddie King, who's a old yeah. blues artist. I'd never heard him. That, that um, HBO show, Eastbound and Down with Danny McBride, the theme song is by this guy called Freddie King. And so when we watched that show, it sort of we delved into his music. And I think he's, I don't know, he's just, I think, one of the most legit blues rock artists of that era. And his guitar tone in particular is kind of, um, it's influenced us in the way we approach recording guitars. But he's one of those guys also, he's a lead guitar player and an amazing voice. And sometimes when... A person is sort of comping for themselves or they're playing phrases on their guitar in between the vocal phrases. Um, it either works or it doesn't, and I think he just freaking nails it. He'll sing a phrase and then compliment it with something on the guitar. And just He's just, made it very difficult for me, at least, to listen to any other 
kind of that similar style of blues music because he just does it so well that it's almost like the perfect spoiling the good. What uh, what era is he from? I, I'm not as familiar with him. Seventies. Seventies. Yeah, just it's a little it's a little uh, late for Marlowe. Yeah, but I could get down. There's in, in fact the um, um, "Ain't No Sunshine When She's Gone" the song by Bill Withers. He does a version of that song. And I'll almost prefer it to the Bill Withers version. Really? You should check out, yeah. Okay. He sounds like mud in like the best way possible. That's what his blues sounds like. It's, it's he driving, like, but it sounds like, you know, it's like a car that's got mud just flying off it. I'll expand. <laughs> like, the, I'd say that the tra- the rhythm track sounds sounds like that, but his guitar tone sounds like some sort of amazing plant or flower growing out of that just bursting its way through that but it just cuts and it's freaking amazing or he's, or he's, or he's 60s 70s for sure maybe like so years. interesting story actually as we discovered him from the song going down off uh that show eastbound and down turns out that one of our dad's old friends who's a singer songwriter living in nashville that our dad has told us some crazy stories about uh traveling in nashville in the 70s and memphis and, oh sorry memphis yeah in fact we'll have our dad on the podcast oh yeah definitely uh yeah so he was telling us all these crazy stories about this guy don nix that he used to hang out with he came and visited in memphis and it turns out don nix wrote going down that yeah. uh you know freddie king made famous so we had no idea of any of this connection i don't even know if we'd heard the song so check him out check out uh, also my favorite song is palace of the king yeah and he uh, talks about <laughs> he talks about pizza in that so like you know it's too cold and right the lyrics are actually really funny it's about going back to dallas where he's I mean, he's from dallas i believe and he's you know the palace of the king uh, he talks about going around the world, playing his music, and he just needs to get back home to Dallas. It's really funny, but in a cool way. What have you been listening to, Johnny? By the way, every time we you know walk into Marlo. Marlo's, yeah, every time we walk into Marlo's editing suite when he's been editing some of our photos, he's he's been he's listening to some old timey like nineteen twenties sounding female singer. Well. But it's all it's like Damn it's it. stuff when they just <laughs> discovered recording. It's like yeah. I I, like vinyl is too high tech for him. He wants wa- original wire recordings. My well, theory it's it's when he f- discovered the fountain of youth. And he's I, just, just, I feel like it was like I, I was, you know, I would po- I would pop on some headphones or just really just blast it in the dressing room. Um I don't know some what was it? Uh I really like Lead Belly. Does anybody else yeah. listen to Lead Belly? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Bob Dylan always talks about him. Yeah, Lead Belly was the best. And then um, who was I listening to recently? Um, um, Christina Aguilar. Okay, well, so I, I do listen to old-timey music. Uh, Gillian Welsh, I don't know if anybody listens to her. She's still alive. Uh, I don't know her. But she's... I- She's like a female. I've been really into female singer songwriters, as Joey can attest. He'll come up into the room. Yeah, we did give you a, a bit of a hard time because I mean, look, some of our favorite singers, like we we get the ones we can agree on, they're our absolute favorites of ours, like Joni Mitchell. I think we can all yeah, agree, I mean, just absolute on. genius and hero of ours. But sometimes we would walk into a dressing room <laughs> and it was like, I don't know, a Dove oh. commercial. Or something. <laughs> a lot of times it was it was uh, Sally Mann. That was the one you gave me the most shit about. I'll have to listen to it because I could. I also just give. I was well, like maybe driving just giving sideways, you shit. driving sideways, and one is the loneliest number. Basically, it was the it was the uh, Magnolia soundtrack. Oh yeah, but I see. I love that stuff. Yeah, exactly. I was just giving you a hard time. <laughs> yeah, but like then it would get into like weird territory. I'd be listening to 
some weird shit. <laughs> but then it's, the other it's, funny it thing stems is, from an insecurity of traveling with just dudes, like nine or ten dudes on a bus. You know, everyone's got to bro it up. Yeah. And so if somebody's listening to, in a sensitive mood, and you know, and you come into the dressing room, and you start to feel sensitive. All of a sudden, you just got to say, "What are you listening to, Johnny?" You know, make a make a <laughs> yeah, lame. But it's like, an can't, immaturity. Can't but- we just like bro down and just be, like <laughs> cry for a bit? <laughs> That's what's hysterical about you, Marlo, is because you were listening to all this stuff. And then we'd be in a bar somewhere, and the most ridiculous butt rock '90s song would come on, and he's there in the corner singing every single word. So I don't know where did where did that come from? Because that you know a lot of those. songs. There's a weird thing about me. I can't remember jack shit. Like I don't remember. I have the worst memory of all time. But for some reason, movie quotes and song lyrics they just like stick like glue in my mind. So <laughs> I can recite like. <clears throat> You know, puddle of mud and uh, <laughs> Kid Rock's Cowboy Baby. <laughs> For some fucking reason, they just they just in there like those those they just stuck. Um, Very interesting. But so <laughs> I don't I don't I don't remember what I was listening to last time you came in, Joe. But I think it was uh, I think I was listening to Bonnie Raitt's. Uh, Kid I Rock's can, both make, sides now. I love how he's picking all the good ones now. <laughs> Bunny, that is one of the all-time great songs and recordings of, of all, all time of all time. Yeah. I think Bonnie Raitt is just next you know, level. You know, that was written off of a, uh, a testimony from a guy who uh, destroyed his girlfriend's car. And he was in court, and they said, did you learn your lesson? And he said, yeah, uh, you can't make a girl love you if she don't. Mm. And that's where that lyric came from. I'd never heard. That's really interesting. (laughs) Yeah, she's definitely one of our favorites as well. Um, So we're going to move on to the music business. Uh, Each week we talk about something different in the music business. This week we're talking about technical and hospital hospital writers. No, (laughs) technical and hospitality writers, which are kind of your requests for uh, what you would like in your dressing room if it's a hospitality writer. And if it's a technical writer, it's what you need on stage or what um, specs you would need from the PA or from any type of equipment that you might be using. So So it's a document that you draw up each, you know, every band – has one or should have one at least at a certain level every band has one and so your management team or your tour management team ahead of the show sometimes weeks or months will send this information and they have to approve it both sides have to approve it and so it's kind of an official process that has to go forward before so that when you show up to the venue you know that you're set that you've got the technical specifications that you need and also the hospitality specifications that you need Uh, so I want to pull up. I'm trying to find it here. I want to pull up what Aris says. This most, is people ask, most people ask the question. A lot of times we get the question in radio interviews or fans will ask, like, what's the weirdest thing on your rider? We don't really have many, if any, weird or extravagant things on our rider. The only um, silly thing we've got here, I've got it. So our tour manager, who we've probably mentioned before, is Scottish, and he has there under the drink section, we want one bottle of Scottish whiskey will be required <laughs> Western Isles preferred, interesting Highland space sides, and even Irish whiskies may be considered. We may switch this for a good tequila or mezcal or other recommended local favorites. Lefroig, Ardbeg, Beaumont, other rarities, Redbreast, Bushmills 18, High West, Rye, Casamigos, tequila. And this was on odd-numbered Fridays that we would request this. <laughs> because when you're touring around, you know, obviously – 
if you you can't get your rider every day because you'd actually overload on rider and there's you could, only so much liquor and beer that you can carry around so we would get it on like every other day or every other friday you'd stock up on this stuff did you cover that we pay for this Oh, yeah. This all comes out. <laughs> well, yeah, no, that is uh, pretty relevant is that when you're doing your own shows and your own tour where you're the headliner, all of that stuff comes out of your – It's a budget. Your budget, basically. So you're paying for all that. So we will – we try to keep that to a minimum to try to save money on the road. But the only times we really kind of go out is all out is if you're doing a, a, on festivals a corporate or, or a festival show where they, you know, they have the money and the budget to fulfill a rider. So in those days, we might put a very nice whiskey <laughs> – Johnny, did you have Marla? Do you have anything on the rider that you wanted I, or didn't ever get? Uh, Chicken. I, I would like to uh, just make it fully clear that I was never asked <laughs> to oh, put well, anything. We on asked the ride. everyone else. <laughs> everyone else on the crew got asked. Really? I wonder why. I wonder why Mick uh, not left cool. you. <laughs> not cool. But isn't there like a thing that Mick would always? Uh, I can't remember. There was a story with the like. They'd put something ridiculous at the end of the rider, and if it wasn't there, that's the brown M and M story. Oh, that's the yeah, brown that, M and M. No, it's like, actually well, a common. True, though, yeah, it's it's like, a common thing, right? Yeah, it's a common thing that bands do. They'll put a lot of detail into their rider, both technical and hospitality rider, even if they don't necessarily want it, because they're just trying to make sure that the venue and the people taking care of them are paying attention to detail. So if they miss certain of these small details, that means that they're probably not paying enough attention it. and they didn't read it properly. So that, that means some big things could go wrong. So a lot of times it's, you know, when you see those crazy stories, I'm you know, not talking about like the JLos who put white roses and everything has to be white and this and that. Just talking about some funny things like what, what did Jack, Jack White did guacamole, yeah. yeah the guacamole recipe. Guacamole. <laughs> the thing that never shows up that's on every one of our riders in like big, giant, bold letters is we need a trash can in every room. It never run. comes. And it never shows up and then we end up throwing shit into the corner and then we look like a band that's just trashing the room. And it's really not. We're very polite. We're pretty rock. <laughs> We're very nice. Very not rock and roll. Years ago. <laughs> We're very nice. Uh, no, I was. I don't think I ever had a request on the uh, rider. I did get quite fond of Red Bulls on the road with you guys, mm. even though I don't really drink those normally. That was like a. That was a me and Chris. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's like because I hate myself and they taste so <laughs> terrible. <laughs> no, you. Everyone has them on the rider just in case. I, most people don't like drinking them. I think there maybe some lighting engineers um, <laughs> like need to them, drink. Yeah. <laughs> they need them, but for the most part, I think most people um, don't really enjoy drinking them. It's just that they have to. Sometimes you know, if you're playing six, seven shows in a row, and you're on that, you know, that sixth show, you're going to need that little bit of extra energy to go play the show or shoot the show or yeah, exactly. do your job. Um, speaking of lighting directors, <laughs> remember AJ? Uh, AJ was uh, our first lighting director. He's a true mad genius. I mean, he came up with so much stuff for our lighting show and worked his ass off. But <laughs> somehow his rider requests ended up on our rider for like <laughs> a year or two after he even, he couldn't tour with us uh, on the last few tours. And, his, and we still had cottage cheese and, and sandwich meats and red wine on the white rider for like a year that no one was eating or drinking. <laughs> our <laughs> bus, ever our bus fridge would just end up with like <laughs> 15 pounds of sandwich meat. <laughs> you walk you walk into a dressing room and go, God damn it, AJ. <laughs> he hasn't been there for two years. And God damn it, AJ. Since we're already membering things why don't we move on to official member berries all right well speaking of wine that reminds me of dax the other merch guy who said he didn't drink but then we found out he had a bottle of wine under the merch table every night (laughs) by himself like what like a glass of wine you could say yeah i don't really drink that guy drank a bottle of wine every night who 
Dax. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, when we talk, when Mo comes on in a couple of weeks, we'll talk about Dax. Dax yeah. was a merch guy that Mo kind of learned the tricks of the merch trade. From. Right. He was the, um, the he was like a Russian disinformation propagandist in terms of the misinformation he would spread. And Mo would just say, yeah, "But Dax said that we're going to be there tomorrow." <laughs> <laughs> so, Marlo, I you probably like tell us the careful version of this story. You have a friend. And you did something ridiculous to him. Ridiculously kind. <clears throat> uh, I'm going to put a disclaimer at the beginning of this story that I, I'm a terrible person. <laughs> 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 and um, I'm really sorry for the things that I've done in the past. And I've tried to, I've tried to make up for them since then. Um, a friend and I got into a, a bit of a, uh, a prank war. One a prank, uh, uh, yeah, a prank one-up man. Uh, one-up thing and uh and he got me real good one day i left my computer open and he got into my facebook and he just went to town i mean <laughs> really badly and i was dealing with it for months afterwards um i, I love that that's, you're gonna just leave it there you can't actually tell us what he did no absolutely really not. can't be talked it's about it's just not it's just not appropriate um <laughs> for anybody um so i go down to my house and you know in my early 20s i thought i i had a little extra time <laughs> on my hands so I created before this was a thing. I created a, a girl on Facebook. Uh, I'm not going to say her name here because <laughs> she's still active. <laughs> uh, I created a girl on Facebook, and uh, and then I friended all of our friends from college. I made her work at the front desk, and uh, I picked a girl that was just right up his alley. <laughs> she had tattoos and black hair. She was a drummer and uh, and a and a dancer. I just knew all the right buzzwords. And then I, uh, friended all my friends and then, um, and then I friended him and, uh, and so, sorry, can I just, to be clear, cause I, I think it's going to miss people. Like when you, you literally created an entirely fake profile, I've, I created an entirely fake profile, but I'm going to admit here, which I don't think I've admitted to you guys before. I invented three other fake profiles <laughs> to talk to her to make her look legit. <laughs> I think that's, that's a legitimate condition that you have. Yeah, I really went for it. And, uh, and then so I friended all my friends, made her work at the college. And then I, I, I was like, oh, I'm going to get this guy so good. And I started like flirting with him over the internet. And he was like, wow, this chick is really hot. And so, like, I would just do subtle things, like comment on a photo or, like, poke him. (laughs) (laughs) And then I would, like, forget about it. But the weirdest thing is that all the guy friends that I friend requested would email me and be like, hey, I totally remember you. Like, it was so nice to see you the other day at the front desk. Even teachers that worked at our college would write to her being like, it's so nice to see you're doing well. It was <laughs> insane. <laughs> and so this went on for way too long. I think I, uh, on and off, seduced my friend over the internet for a, a solid year. <laughs> 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 Just, I, I had inside jokes with him. Uh, Before people start thinking you're too much of it, can we just say that you're still friends with this guy? That you absolutely. guys, this was in the spirit of pranking each other and one-upping each other. So. It was. It was in the spirit of one-upping each other, and I just, it, it just. I mean, it's a classic. You just went too far, Marlo. You just <laughs> took it, um, and so 
how it all came crashing down is I had a friend that was living with me at the time and he walked into my room while I wasn't there and he found her Facebook profile open on my computer. And so his mind goes instantly to Johnny's definitely dating this girl and she was in this house. (laughs) And so he goes up to my other friend who I've been seducing for a year and he says, Hey, you know, Marlo's fucking this girl, right? She's in the house. She was there, her Facebook profile, and they've been dating. And so my friend comes down later that night, shit-faced, so drunk. And he says, 20 years, man. 20 years, and you can't tell me the truth. I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, you knew I liked her, and you just went for her anyway. And I was like... Oh, God, (laughs) when you find out what's actually been going on, you're going to be so much more mad at me. (laughs) And so uh, eventually I was like, listen, man, I have to tell you, this was a prank after a prank you pulled on me a year ago. (laughs) And it went too far. And I'm really sorry. But like, I'll sign you into her. I'll sign you into her profile right now. And he was like, she's not real. I was like, she's not real, man. He's like, you made her up. I was like, yeah, I promise. I'm really sorry. He's like, that's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) So thank God the spirit of the prank was not lost on that guy. And we are, to this day, still great friends. Didn't he say, who else can we get? Yeah, oh yeah. (laughs) That explains explains why you're friends. And then I gave him the login. (laughs) (laughs) Holy shit. Evia, like the fruits of the devil. (laughs) That is a good... So it's nothing's going to follow that in terms of evilness. I don't think so. But uh, we have a little tradition, and I always remember this when you were around because you gave us – it was your last day on tour, and you gave us a nice bottle of uh, Irish whiskey mm. as a parting gift, and we were crossing the Canadian border, and we do this every time we cross the Canadian border back into America. We play Ray Charles, America the Beautiful, <laughs> because as funny as it is, it actually feels nice to drive back into America. It's become like a bit of a goof and a joke thing, but like yeah, but when you play that song, you drive back into America, it's a really weird thing the way it makes you feel but for some reason it actually is like a nice tradition it feels like you're like ah back on american soil <laughs> well it's because you go to, <laughs> you you go to canada and we play in canada a lot and we love it up there so but a lot of times you'll play several canadian cities in a row so you go up to vancouver or whatever or edmonton and make your way across the country and you just get you can only take so much nice before you have to come back to America. Get treated like shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. That's have true. You, have you noticed that? That, uh, that like, like the, the stereotype about Canadians. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just the, the apologizing. It's almost like a, it's almost like a hello. Like, oh, yeah. I have a great apology story. Is I, uh, we were, there's some fans waiting outside the bus um, for some signatures and, I went out, I signed them, and I walked away with their marker. And I came back, because I realized that I walked away with their marker, and I came back and said, hey, sorry, I, you know, I took your marker. And they were like, oh, I'm so sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. They, they apologized for me walking away with the, the marker. It's, I don't think it fully means, like, I'm sorry. Maybe no, it, it doesn't. Does. I don't know. It's just like a habitual thing. Oh, for sure, yeah. I, I don't think they were actually sorry. For but I, like, I knew you guys liked whiskey, and I wanted to, because it was my first tour. And I was leaving, and I was like, "I want to come back." I want well that, and I was just like, "This was special." Like, I need to, you know, just do something nice. 
it was red breast whis- Irish whiskey, which is on our rider now, and you were, you introduced us to that. Uh, it's I mean we love. I think Scotch is probably the number one drink of the band and crew, but sometimes nothing can beat a good Irish whiskey. Oof. And that red breast did it for us. You know, we we finished that bottle as we were crossing into America, and everybody was just like teary and hugging and so drunk though luckily we've always had very nice experiences at the border like there's been a couple times we come back in through buffalo where the border agents have recognized us and been fans of the band so that's been really kind of weird and nice but it's always at like four in the morning and you're either just completely tired or very 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 drunk (laughs) and uh it's a very disorienting experience because they you cross the border and almost like nine times out of ten you have to leave the bus, go and show your passport, and then they send either people and or dogs onto the bus to go sniff for whatever they're looking for. And uh, it's a, always a – it sticks out in my memory, those moments, because it's just – you're so out of it. Yeah. And it's such a weird experience. You know, there's cops and people asking you questions like, why were you here? And you're like, I played a show. Like, where? You have to answer all these specific questions that you're not they're good at their, about. They're but- good at their job of being a – Interrogators, because you feel like you're being interrogated. Even if you didn't do anything, yeah, you're, you're just like, like, you're just so like guilty, and you start yeah. saying, "I'm sorry." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, I actually I remember having the whiskey on board, and I was like, "Am I allowed to bring this back, man?" <laughs> Sitting there like sweating, super drunk. Yeah, you're, everybody's freaking out about them, whether or not they have acceptable oranges in the back. This, Which I we mean, didn't. we should just describe a little bit the layout of a bus because I think it's kind of a, in relation to this border story. It's kind of a funny thing. So. There's the driver's area, then you go back into the front lounge, it's a common area, you know, with couches and fridge and there's a toilet there, and then go into the sleeping area, which is just like an aisle, you walk down an aisle of bunks, bunk beds, three, usually stack three aside, so there's 12 bunks total, and then you get into the back lounge, and we can maybe put some photos to describe this, but... On the times where you go to sleep, if it's like a 5 a.m. border crossing, you'll go to sleep at 2 or whatever. And then you get woken up when you're at the border. And it's either the driver or somebody's waking you up. It's just a very surreal feeling to pop your head out of your bunk and you see everyone's head pop out at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, pulling the curtain back and you've got to roll out of bed in your slippers and go, at free, a lot of times, freezing weather and go and talk to these people who are going to ask you, how many days were you in Canada? Where did you play? Once or twice they've been nice enough to let us stay in our bunks and they come on yeah, the you- bus and we just have to pop our heads out they call your names out and you just like the uh brady family or whatever you pop your head out of your curtain <laughs> south Isn't africans that- i swear to god <laughs> what, what is it family, what is brady, brady bunch, bunch. Oh, the brady- <laughs> and that's that is they are tom brady like the brady are- family or something you know <laughs> <laughs> they are tom brady's parents right yeah they're taught every every white person is tom brady tom brady international airport at lax <laughs> yeah, exactly. what is that's my favorite thing is foreign misinterpretations of, of little sayings oh i love it yeah, yeah the, the yeah. proof is in the cut <laughs> <laughs> all right so let's talk about favorite gear item of the week um and i think maybe also this is probably a good place because we haven't really talked about it much you got into photography initially because you were dad um but you had a pretty wild interesting upbringing and so maybe just tell us about your favorite piece of the um, piece of gear and then tell us Tell us your history. <laughs> Tell us my uh, well. So for, get, gear first. Yeah. Tell yeah, us your so gear. So we're doing special guest this week. We're doing photography gear instead of audio. Ooh. Gear. Well, so okay. Just to just to clarify, should I say p- favorite piece of road gear or favorite piece of gear in general? Anything you like. Uh, well, I'll do like a I'll do a two part. 
because <laughs> nerd <laughs> this, alert. This is how you know you're a nerd. <laughs> well, because if anybody's out there wondering what 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 the best way to capture like a rock band is, to say, um, I'd say I wouldn't have been able to get half of the photos that I really treasure and that I think that really describe the feeling on tour uh, without uh, a 600 ex speed light which is the camera flash that goes on the top of my camera you can have you can have a good camera and you can have a bad camera but if you have a speed light with a bracket and a bracket uh is something that takes the uh speed light or the the on-camera flash and puts it off to the side of your camera so it's like a little it's a metal, little metal piece that goes off to the side and there's a hot shoe on there and it gives it that really kind of 1960s paparazzi feel and it, it really just has a different it creates a lot of depth and it creates a lot of like that, that's what you were using when we were doing all the shaky face yes stuff. exactly and so like all of the all of like the 1960s kind of paparazzi black and white that i've done all looks like that but because of that light and so well if you look at the pictures of those guys taking pictures back then they were they had, a, because, they had a big yeah, flash exactly. off to the side, right? A big flash off to the side. It was never on top of their camera, and mm-hmm. it always had that little bit of depth. That li- it was, it was always the shadow was always slightly like an inch off to the left. Right. Maybe, uh, maybe you can take some time out of your busy schedule to pick a few favorites of that style of photography, so we can put it on the. Website. I will absolutely. Yeah. I've even got them in my mind right now. Um, yeah, we'll throw some of those shaky faces and all those photos that you took on the road as well up. Yeah, and that was actually part of. Uh, part of i was trying to create photo series on the road with you guys so like the shaky face was one of them there was a couple other ones that are now escaping me but we did the bathroom ones we did the bathroom ones and uh but you know some of some of the photos that we took on on the bus and you know oh de- uh <clears throat> bus parties bus parties i would never have been able to catch right. catch those bath bus parties without that light there's have that series that i took with your camera i i did i put my hand out <laughs> and you put your camera in my hand and I took remember where I uh, murdered you oh yes uh, absolutely you in the trash can a, uh, we'll, maybe we'll post one of those up there oh yeah we were we were we were stranded because the bus was fucked up and yeah. uh, and then Joey did a series where he murdered me and Chris stuck us in a trash can and then ran off into the bushes <laughs> but I'd say that that I, the, the tour wouldn't have been the same without that one piece of gear you can have a camera and you can have like a 60D a 5D you can have a 70D or you can have a little rebel but if you don't have something that you don't have the light then it's not it's not going to look right yeah it's, I guess it's also one of the few things that um, technology is, is not able to address yet I know like uh, you know, with Apple's dual uh, dual lenses and with that light camera, eventually uh, focusing will be a thing of the past. But it it already almost is. Mm. Um, and but light, you can't. You can't. light, you can't fake. And so, yeah, but not, at least not has, convincingly yet. It all has its own vibe to it. That really harsh light that they they, they had no option but to use back in the sixties and fifties and. 40s. I hate to say it though, we, the same thing that it gives you a depth image. Like, have you seen those light? Cameras, yeah, the ones with like seventeen lenses on them. Oh red. yes, yes, yes. I mean, once you've got depth information, you you will be able to read. Okay, but the then you have to be a master of lighting to create that vibe. So you're going to end up using more time trying to create the vibe right now. Yeah, but ten years from now. Yeah. Hey, we have an update, guys. The Indian food is here, so <laughs> um, Dylan's gone to get it. But we'll so keep this podcast. And I would rolling. say, I would say another piece of gear that I would be lost without is. Uh, uh, f- I mean, I guess just a film camera. My dad's 1967 Hasselblad 500 CM, um, 
with a 120 millimeter macro lens. <laughs> I'm really going to go numbers. For it <laughs> <laughs> um, that that camera, it's just it's so unique and it's so it's like it's just got such a vibe and such a look to it. It's like you know, like you guys recording onto tape or I don't know if anybody does that anymore, but no, yeah, it definitely is. That's it's a good very analogy. Ana- analogous. The it, it's analog. a good analogy. Yeah, yeah. It's just, the thing is it doesn't sound better. It doesn't sound worse. It just is different. It has a different personality yeah. to it. So tell us a little bit. You mentioned you grew up in Aspen and Mexico, which right. is kind of a weird two things to place ne- next to each other. Give us like, why were you in Mexico and why um, were you in Aspen? And tell us about Hunter Thompson. <laughs> uh, well, there, there's, I guess there's two parts of that story because there's the Aspen side of things, which was more like my dad's side of things. And, uh, you know, we grew up with, with, you know, the people of Aspen, which were <laughs> back in the 70s and 60s. Like everybody, all these really ridiculous people moved to Aspen. Like the uh, writer Hunter S. Thompson was one of our neighbors growing up. And so we have a lot of really, really fun memories of that guy. My middle school was actually on the top of the hill directly above hunter's house so my <laughs> friends my friend was his godson so we'd sneak down go onto his property and he was probably high as a kite <laughs> and then we would new up and knock on his door and he would give us like chocolates and candy and we'd bring it in, bring us into his house and there was i remember there's a a skull from a uh, from from vietnam that he took home from from being a war correspondent and it had a bullet hole in it oh, from wow. a Viet Cong warrior he had all kinds of crazy shit, dude. He had uh, this giant bear statue. And like, the thing is he had peacocks all over his, uh, his property because he was so scared of the hell's angels coming to kill him. Um, because they're a natural alarm system. So if you step foot onto his, oh, I thought you were going to tell me something magical about peacocks. No, because kill, if you step foot on, if you step foot onto his property, they would sound an alarm and it would go through all oh. the peacocks. And so he'd probably be in his house, hiding in a dark corner with a gun. <laughs> Psycho. <laughs> Um, but on the other side of things, when uh, instead of Aspen, I would uh, my mom was also the, the my mom who introduced me to the Congos. She was uh, like a spiritual revolutionary, <laughs> and uh, she was really into uh, Native culture. So I grew up halfway in Aspen, and then also halfway you know, with um, different Native tribes like uh, uh, Hopi and Lakota. American Indians, and then I also spent a lot of time with the Lacandone Indians in Mexico in the Lacandone jungle, which is like just outside of Chiapas. How old were you at that time? Uh, on and off from six to about 12, 13. And this was, I mean, I remember you telling us that you know, you, you bet you lived in, in the villages, in a lot of times, no electricity or no running water, and it was an I mean, I, it's another kind of reality that's hard to relate to for us who've grown up in a normal Western world society. But, uh, you know, do you feel like you got something? I, I would imagine you got something out of that, surely. I don't think I would have been, I don't think I'd be the same person without all of those. Uh, even though I, at the time I was such a little shit, like I would just wanted to go home and I was like, I just wanted to be with my friends. But I. I don't think I would be like we. My s- friends are doing coke and aspirin. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're all like six, <laughs> um, but I wouldn't be the same person. Like we, we, you know, slaughtered pigs in the jungle and like built a canoe with the native children. I grew up my hair uh, super long. I had this long, l- 
blonde braid that went down to my like the small of my back because I wanted to be like all the Indian kids. Um, and like we would bathe in this lagoon with all these little like kind of carnivorous fish. <laughs> uh, and there was jaguars and like the whole jungle floor would come alive at night. Like just I'm starting to think you just fucking read the jungle book. That would be <laughs> bad. I mean, yeah. What part of, then, what part of Mexico is this in? This is in the Lacandon jungle. It's uh, like it was five hours into the jungle from Chiapas. Which huh. is a little bit south of Mexico City. Do you have, you have any pictures? Oh yeah, tons. Yeah, send oh my god, you guys have can... to see those. And then I also, I've seen a few of them. They're pretty incredible. We lived uh, we lived on top of this mountain with uh, a Mexican or a, a Tarahumara fiddle maker named Patrocinio Lopez. Oh yeah, they're the runners, right? The running Indians yeah. of the Chihuahua, like of Chihuahua and the Copper Canyon. Oh yeah, yeah those the, uh, those Carl that, Pilkington documentary about those guys. That tribe, I think the longest run that they've done is 400 miles. That's insane. Yeah. And they have – now everyone's gotten into this barefoot because I used to run a lot. And they got into the, the barefoot minimalist running and there's – they call them haraches, Like the little um, – I think. I hope I'm not fucking that up. They're like basically little flaps of leather or anything they can find that they tie to their feet and they run – hundreds of miles at a time. Is that is that less healthy or more healthy or I mean I've done a bit of it and I I basically subscribe to the idea that it's ultimately healthy but um you wouldn't want to go running barefoot down Hollywood Boulevard or anything like that. No, but maybe on the dirt though, right? Yeah, yeah. Um I it definitely develops all your tendons and yeah. muscles and everything. Yeah, you got to build up to it, but uh you realize how much impact is happening when you're landing on your heels. Um, anyway, as a sidetrack, but yeah, well, that's the tribe. Also, they run hundreds of miles. At a time. Uh, when I was, I, I kind of came back to Aspen and went to high school and then I, uh, did a long trip with my mom. The last one I actually did was to South Africa to, uh, the border of Botswana with the, uh, um, Bushman of the Kalahari. Oh, cool. Yeah. And so that's, that's kind of what tied her to South Africa right, right. and to her South African husband, which is kind of tied into you guys because that's what you were all connected on, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Her, her current husband is for pretty much from our dad's era. From and they, Durban. They knew, they, I don't, they didn't know each other, but they knew like almost everyone in common, our, our dad and, and your mom's current husband. Yeah. They had like, they just had so many current friends and then all. It's like they were a mirror, like a, like a yin yang of each other because I think he moved to London when our dad moved back to South Africa <laughs> and vice, he, uh, our dad moved to London when he moved to South Africa. It was a, it was a funny little coincidence. Yeah, exactly. But, um, yeah, I I wouldn't be the same without those, those interactions. So I'm really grateful for him. Yeah. Well, I look forward to seeing the photos cause I haven't actually, I mean, we've talked about I have this to show them to you. I, have to, I have to find those, uh, albums. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we'll throw a couple up there. We, we'll do our uh, What's It Like Being in a Band with Your Brothers section. How many times have you witnessed us get that question? Holy shit. <laughs> that reaction says it all. I you, think possibly every day I've ever been with you on tour. <laughs> Maybe not when we're just hanging out, but every single day, I think. Well, specifically, remember that. Um, interview we got in uh, Cleveland, Columbia. Yeah, or Cl- Columbia. That's where it was. Uh, oh, Columbia, Missouri. Missouri. Columbia, Missouri. Missouri Wait, which yeah. one was Cleveland? I did, I'm mixing up states. They both started with C. Columbia, Missouri. We were down in the basement getting had, getting the interview with us. And that, also, Im- that interview is infamous. Yeah. I loved that day. <laughs> we can't tell you anything. <laughs> so, what's it like being in a band with your brothers? We thought we'd talk about something that you could kind of chime in on. Uh, you know, there's a million things that sort of define the dynamic between us four 
in this band and when you go on tour and you're in close quarters and you sometimes go weeks or months where you can't get away from each other you know the, the like the most escape you can have is by closing the curtain in your bunk uh, it brings out tensions between everyone and you know so keeping a vibe on on tour is really important but i mean there there's no escaping getting in arguments sometimes uh, especially with brothers where there's a sibling thing built into it and a family sort of history built into it already so there are times where 10 minutes before we're going on stage we're screaming at each other about something it could be something serious or something totally meaningless but i mean we've gotten pretty good and maybe maybe you can weigh in like on literally being able to call each other the worst things you can imagine. And then two seconds later, we walk on stage and we do a show and we have like, that's our job. We have to do that. So we've, we've kind of learned to do it. I mean, it's kind of funny to watch honestly, because it's, it's, oh, it's funny. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not really though, because like I'm sitting there sticking, sticking a camera in your face too. Like <laughs> when you're at your most vulnerable and it kind of feels like shit too. I was just like, yeah <laughs> like i'm kind of like just like getting Give me the drama <laughs> i'm just like yes feed the monster <laughs> um but i i mean i've i've always been really impressed with how you guys have been able to turn it off like that when you get onto stage or like when it becomes time to because honestly you're pretty good about not diving into any kind of real shit like that in front of anybody else i've seen it obviously a million times and maybe i've seen it more than others because i'm constantly documenting you guys <laughs> like it's my job to be there but i actually have a i don't i don't know where the fuck we were at kentucky or something but there was a really bad one I mean, there was like a <laughs> fucking hailstorm in a room and uh i was sitting there being like oh yeah here it comes <laughs> just like a weather <laughs> weatherman predicting it <laughs> just like getting in focus getting like nice and settled in you put and your then, rain jacket on like exactly. one of those hurricane like, put a, like you know tie the thing around my face <laughs> and then dylan turns to me he's like marlo get the fuck out of here <laughs> like you have to go he like he saw it coming and so like he just like slammed the door in my face and then i was just sat there like <laughs> listening with like your listening. ear at the door <laughs> like on the door with the camera being like I think I can get the audio <laughs> I think I can get it guys well we I mean we've talked about this a little bit so we've been working on this docu-series we won't we're, we'll probably be announcing it fairly soon a lot more details about it but when we first brought out photographers and uh, filmographers on the road with us we were a lot more just get the highlights. Make us look yeah, like, cool. Yeah, like get the crowd shot. Get us walking off stage, high fiving, like the gear endorsement picture. You know, it was, <laughs> it was like to present the Instagram picture of ourselves, right. which everyone is doing. But as we started going on, and you noticed this, I think coming out on different tours, we did start saying like, just leave the camera rolling with everything. We'd be having arguments between us about business stuff, about all, all kinds of things. And it was, it's been interesting now going back and watching that. And I think it'll be interesting for people to see once we finally uh, finish cutting this whole series together. But it's weird for us to go back and watch your life because we have now got years of it documented. And you, and you, you don't remember yourself. Like you you're get, like watching somebody else. This, this could be a seamless transition into deep thoughts, I think, because um, you – when you have the camera around so much and at a certain point we said, okay, we are no longer shutting the door on you, Marlo, you know, keep rolling kind of thing. Right. Um, and you forget the camera's there at a certain point. So, you know, with the power of editing, we probably will choose to sh not show you certain things. But for the most part, you know, it's pretty it's – re it's revealing. And what's weird looking at this footage as we're cutting it together is going – 
like I'll be looking at myself and I say, oh, you know, when he said this, it was really good. And I re- I'm talking about myself in third person. And it's a, it's a, and I catch myself doing that. And it kind of takes you out of yourself. It's very strange to look at it as though it's not you. And because, you know, you start to realize that the person that was making that statement in the video, you're in a certain state, you become so attached to that, uh, that feeling or thought that you're having. And you think this is me. And then watching it on film, it's like, is that was that me or is <laughs> that's a really interesting point though i mean i guess i would i would always wonder if you guys look back on the footage that i've given you or that i've taken like do you identify with that person going through that or is it that's the actually truly interesting thing about having this done because everyone's doing it now more so and 200 years ago there was nothing like this no it was not even a you would have to sit there for a week and get painted to have anything representing yourself now you have constant ability to look back on this and i think to me it really suggests that we're not uh ourself in the way that we think of ourselves that there's millions of us because I feel so disassociated, dissociated, whatever the word is, from the person I'm watching talking about this, that, or the other. Is it that or is it just a terrible memory that we have? And it more, is your sense of self attached to your bad memory, basically? That's a difficult question. I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's, it's just something about seeing, being able to watch yourself back that really highlights that question. Like, we don't, I don't have an answer, but it, it highlights the question as to what is the thing that identifies as uh, the self or, like, the person who says, I am me. I think it starts, yeah, it starts even uh, more simply or earlier than that. The first time you hear your voice, as in not singing, but, like, your talking voice, you're always surprised. People are always surprised. John Marler was just surprised, but... The sound of his own voice, you know. Uh, you're surprised at how smooth and soothing it was. You're like, welcome to KMA. All clouds all the time, baby. <laughs> but yeah, when you first hear your talking voice, it's very um, alarming, actually. You don't think you sound like that. And then once you get over that and you see yourself in an interview um, and you get over you know, some aspect of your personality in that, when you're having a camera around you constantly, you get to witness and observe all these very very subtle things about your personality or your essence or whatever it is and it's very strange to see certain mannerisms or characteristics that you would you've never been conscious of and especially when you know your brothers so well um seeing seeing it back because oftentimes in the moment when you're having an argument or you're having a discussion you're very identified with your uh, perspective and then seeing it back a little bit more objectively you see very strange things and it starts to question exactly that like what who is it that's acting all the entire time in all these situations it's so fascinating to me though i mean I, we don't have really have to get that far into it but like that's also being being interpreted by you by like right. this judgmental being who's judging your now movements like other people don't see you that way and i have to constantly tell people that because the first thing people will do when they look at a photo or a video of themselves they'll be like i, I swear to god they'll they'll fix their hair and they'll like they'll look at the you know they'll, they'll kind of fix their hair from where it was in the yeah. photo and just be like you know you know it's just it's my chin there and it's my nose there and i was like 
You know what? Like, would you be friends with somebody who is as much of an asshole as you're being to yourself right now? <laughs> yeah, see, I'm, I'm not. No way. I'm not saying necessarily that it's. They're a, friends with you. That it's. <laughs> but, uh, no, I'm not saying it's judgmental, but it's like, you know, it's such an interesting thing judging yourself. I think definitely there's an element of that, which is uh, self conscious, that you, when you see yourself, you start to. Uh, your vanity or your pride starts to, you know, rise up and you, that starts to comment. But if I'm talking more about the things that you just weren't even aware of they're not necessarily bad or good they're just things that you were completely unaware of i think what's interesting i've noticed is occasionally you watch a little bit of yourself and you remember in that moment having been a little more present or a little more like collected and together and that memory feels a little closer to the to the person who's now watching it because it's like those two moments are connected in terms of how you're feeling. It's all the other ones that seem like this weird animal that's out of control. <laughs> like, you know, especially if you watch video of yourself drunk as we've done, Oof. like, you know, you, <laughs> <laughs> like it's just, it, it's uh, maybe it's, maybe it's a cop out. You want to believe that somebody else, but uh, I don't, it, well, I don't have the, I know what Johnny's saying, which is when you see yourself, you're usually you're the first thing that reacts is your self consciousness. That's not me. I, I yeah, don't yeah. do that. And you, you, it's this. It's that kind of you know your image of yourself. Your kind of uh, your fancy image of yourself is getting destroyed a bit. But when you've edited footage of yourself for tens and maybe hundreds of hours, that negativity wears off, and you start to see footage of yourself just as footage of another person. You know what I mean? That your initial reaction to it, which is to seek out the negative or to, you know, you know, maybe confront the fact that you had imagined yourself differently, that wears off. And then you, in this, I start to edit footage of myself, as Jesse was saying, the same way I edit footage of another person. Really? It's, it's quite bizarre. Yeah. yeah. You, you, I literally say, it was funny when he said that. And I, or it was stupid, <laughs> you know, when he said that. And I'm talking about myself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just, and then you subsequently catch yourself doing it. I, think I say that about you too. <laughs> I think what you uh, said about people, though, when, especially if they haven't had a ton of photos taken of themselves, and you show them a photo, and they immediately start criticizing it. I think it's almost like catching yourself in the mirror, you know. And I feel like maybe Bill Murray or some, I saw him in an interview talking about this, this idea that, the minute you see yourself in a mirror, you like change your posture, and you're like, yeah, uh, you you project the self that you think you are, and that is a, for me, that's an indication that you don't actually see yourself. You only see this this construction of yourself that you um, have made up, you know, or like how you want to see yourself or how you think you see yourself. Yeah, absolutely, and I mean, it's just fascinating because. I was talking to, I was, I don't want to get too heavy here, but I was talking to a friend who was going through a really rough time personally, like a depression and I, they were really being really hard on themselves. And I said to them that you are the one person you can't trust your judgment on, on this matter. You don't see yourself the way other, everybody else sees you. And you just have to put your blind trust into that. You don't appear that way to the world. Like you don't appear the way that you think Look, when you look at yourself from a third person perspective, like, you know, how much you hate, you know, whatever it is that you're, you're doing or you like your mannerisms or your voice when I sound like a frog. <laughs> <laughs> isn't that kind of you, a catch 22 trust that that's not how the world sees you. you but isn't that, that funny though, that, that pro that kind of problem, that disappointment in yourself is almost universal. Right. But it, it also arises 
from trusting other people's opinions about you to begin with. <laughs> so it's, it's this circular thing that you, this problem you get into where, well, you start believing other people, your perception of other people's perception of you. Yeah, but it's like a total assumption. You're assuming. Right. They, it's it's yeah. all imagination. Yeah. But, you're, well, you see, but it also works in reverse. I think, mo- I think people imagine as many positive qualities about themselves as they imagine false negative ones. I don't think people... I suppose that's true. Yeah. I mean, people are subsequently super egotistical and incredibly self-deprecating. So you, right, could, yeah. you could basically say that your sense of self is wavering between positive... Or like a, a fakely positive view of yourself and then a fakely negative view of yourself and that somewhere in the middle of those two things is probably what you actually are. And mediocre. Yeah. Well, <laughs> mediocre or just that you're, you're constantly wavering between these Oh, I things. think they depend on each other. Yeah. I think, I, I, it feels to me if you, you know, if you view your – if you step back and view – something not as linearly like not as moment to moment and more it feels like usually that positive moment needs a negative moment you know yeah they, but they go together okay, so, so yeah so, say you go we go with that as an idea oh, yeah, this is getting good <laughs> who <laughs> who is the who's the guy in the middle that's that's the i don't know i've never question. met that person I think what you're asking is who is who and what is this observer that you are describing the self as you know what what is describing the self is it some developed other personality that has judgments and um mannerisms or things of its own that it's it's completely making a, a subjective judgment of what you think of as the self yeah and is it a russian doll situation like say you could meet that guy in the middle like who's who's the guy watching him it's i would be interesting to see like we've had this as a little I think weird thing for ourselves because we've been sitting editing hundreds of hours of ourselves. Uh, what you kind of see how actors, perhaps in some ways, do become more aware and in more control of their manifestations, at least in certain aspects of their life. Because if you've had to sit and do that and realize, like, this is how I want to be perceived, and this is how I will be perceived. Maybe stage actors. A lot of film and TV actors like act for like three seconds, and yeah, then they, they go they and stand and wait for them yeah, to fix the lighting. Yeah, they also never watch it either. But my question is, like, I, I guess the catharsis of that would be, have you guys seen any footage that has changed your actual interactions? Like, you're like, oh, wait, I saw myself do that. Like, I'm not going to do that anymore. I think part of the problem is that you, slight, you control yourself. You know, when when you're on camera, but because little, of footage you've seen. No, no, I'm saying at the time that you were being filmed. Mm. You do, even if you even if you forget the cameras there, you don't really. So you control yourself. I think if we had footage of ourselves, you know, if there was a, <laughs> if we lived in London and there was a camera on every corner and everybody could access one of these cameras, then. Yes, you would have objective footage of yourself. Well, apparently there's objective footage of myself with Gulas in South Africa that he left a camera running while I wasn't aware of this. <laughs> Wait, what was this? <laughs> I don't know. We were just shit-faced drinking, and he was like, let's drink their booze. And I was like, ah, oh, it's theirs, dude. We can't do it. <laughs> I, know, I, know I would the, say uh, definitely that there are things that I've seen on camera where I go back and say, well, I'm not going to do that anymore. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I would, I'm saying there would be a, that, there would be you know a lot mean? more if they had if we weren't performing for the Oh camera. yeah, yeah. yeah. That, if I wasn't so aware of the camera, there'd probably be a lot more things I would change about I suppose. Uh, not I don't think it's it, judgment has a funny word, like a funny connotation. connotation to it. Like sometimes yeah, clearly it's bad to be constantly judging yourself in an unnecessarily negative way, but uh, to reflect on the way you act 
you can call it judgment, whatever you want to call it. It's it's useful, you know. Whether you can implement it basically becomes a question of whether you can remember now having watched the footage in the next moment. The next time that you are sitting at a bar, I'm not going to do the thing that I typically do and I've seen myself do. Like that's that's the difficult part of it. That's I mean I think that's the I think that's the point is is that judgment is negative. Analysis is just kind of like taking all the facts and being like, okay, as an impartial, who do I want to be? That's why I stopped smoking weed. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't. That doesn't make sense to me. That that it's. I want to hear the end of a story. Go go ahead. Oh, I I, uh, the self analysis part of me turned crazy negative. It wasn't able to be objective anymore. It wasn't able to assimilate all of these these little facts, and, and it just went crazy negative and so well you're a self-admitted horrible person so are you sure that wasn't the weed telling you <laughs> the weed's like no, yeah but so say when i do acid <laughs> then it shows me all of those things and i can objectively deal with you, my you, horrible you, 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 personality. You, you, you view them in a in a non-attached way and I think that's the if, if you're gonna if you're gonna view them in, as a, in a super negative way, then you're already judging them, and you've already it's, lost the battle. And it's it's you're you're judging a subjective quality in a subjective Exa- state, exactly. And it's not very you, not very the objective part is the important. I'm just not a negative factor. guy. I I <laughs> like the fact something that I'm fundamentally doesn't make <laughs> something doesn't make sense to you said earlier. We should, wait, hang on, can we just let the audience in on on the fact that this is Johnny's character is t- saying he's a horrible person we all play along he is he is not a horrible person but what's one of the things we like saying is he's a horrible person and he likes saying about himself so right exactly because he, of like the, the i i personally through it you're the fruit of the devil because yeah. of the the temptation on the internet and all that stuff right yeah um what was i gonna say oh yeah something doesn't make sense to me which is that you how, if analysis is based on who do i want to be is clearly not objective. It's got some subjective aim, but it can be. It can be a. It can be something to reach. Who would I like to be? Right, but isn't that then you're starting off in a state of judgment? Well, we have to start somewhere. <laughs> so I guess you're comparing the kinds of judgment you're making. I think. Yeah, right. I think what you're saying is the very notion. The notion. The notion of uh, trying to be. of trying to analyze almost. Presupposes. Oh, oh dear. <laughs> is anybody still there? Just, <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, you just can't have these talks without starting to use big words. But like, what I'm saying is, the minute you start saying you're an you're going to analyze something. Should we just you, say that we're really fucking high to excuse ourselves from this conversation? I gave no. them all well, acid this, this is the same as any other conversation. Oh, yeah, we're go, just no. not talking about uh, beer or whatever. <laughs> um, the minute you begin to analyze something. Now it presupposes an aim or a, a, an end goal for that analysis. Or if it, are you talking about purely just watching? I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm starting to have flashbacks of that Woody Allen movie where Diane Keaton and here are talking about subjectivity versus objectivity. And, no, but isn't the objective also the, and, and at a certain point they just say, can we please stop talking about sex? It's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. Well, I'll, maybe we'll wrap it up. I've got one story to tell about Marla, which I think is uh, very funny and explains why. Is it why, a FOMO story? Um, it's not necessarily a FOMO story, but it's it's – 
It describes Marlowe's personality the way we've just said it, which is he's not a horrible person, but he has a very funny, horrible person character. <laughs> and so his full name is Jonathan Baxter Marlowe. David, David Baxter, David Baxter Marlowe. Marlowe the 14th or whatever it is. Um, and his family, where is your family originally from? It's like Maine, right? Or well, we came over on the Mayflower. <laughs> yes, they came um, over the Mayflower. But uh, originally my great-grandfather was the uh, governor of Maine. <laughs> right, so Marlowe's great Grandfather, if you ever go to Maine and you drive around or you go to Portland Portland, and you walk around the city, you'll notice the name Baxter everywhere. He's got his own can of soup or something. Oh, no, there's, there's Baxter Beer, there's Baxter Avenue, there's Baxter Park. He yeah. donated how many... 150,000 acres to the state yeah, of Maine. Something like that. Uh, and there, we actually have a peak, Baxter Peak, which I stood on top of and said I was king of the world. <laughs> but, so, but you're very angry that your, your great-grandfather was very charitable and gave away he everything you should have he inherited. Didn't, he didn't believe in nepotism, so basically before he died, he was like, nah, <laughs> you don't get jack shit. So he gave away millions. So to- Baxter is old money minus the money. Right, we're just old. <laughs> yeah, so you've got you've got the personality of of you're like Mr. Burns. So that, that that's the that's the joke is yeah. that I've adapted this incredibly like rich, horrible, like Meisner or Miser <laughs> Miser, uh, but without any money. Right. <laughs> yeah. So this this has kind of seeped into Marlowe's uh, fake personality, but also his subconscious, and sometimes it comes out in real life where we were walking down the street in. Portland, Maine, where his uh, great-grandfather used to own the entire city or state. Everything. And uh, he starts, he stops in the middle of a walk and says, something's in my shoe. It's bothering me. What is, what is this in my shoe? Never going to live it down. And <laughs> he takes off his shoe and he turns it over and coins fall out of his <laughs> shoe. And he says, oh, it's money. <laughs> and Dylan hits the pavement. I've never seen him laugh so hard. He's like... He's like heaving on the floor. <laughs> while because I'm the like whole time he's been the talking about the, my, been talking oh, about I the own back. this state. My family owns this state. <laughs> What's yeah. that in my shoe? It's money. <laughs> it's money. Right. Um, well, that's probably as good a place as any to end. Yeah, I feel like we could have Johnny back just because this is literally w- one hundredth of the shit that we've talked on the bus I mean, over the s- years. Seriously, but, yeah, I mean, we haven't even touched on South Africa and uh, and. Uh, mm. South America too. Next time we got to talk about Johnny's FOMO. He has literally the worst case of FOMO I've ever seen. I've never. I can't. I can't miss out on. There was one. one, The only way we got him to do this podcast. (laughs) I was like sick. (laughs) Final story for for today's podcast. We uh, in 2015 we went on tour. It's a winter tour. At, At a certain point, literally every single person on the bus was sick. Everyone was had this cough that was like. You couldn't go to sleep without hearing five different. It cops started with guy. Johnny. That's he, yeah. bullshit. It absolutely did. It's because of the fucking amount of chicken you eat. It was the avian flu. <laughs> bullshit. I think it started with you. However, it started. Fans. We all we all got it. <laughs> so we finished a six week winter tour, and then like two days later, got on a plane to South America, and we did seven flights in like ten days or something like that. And everyone was still sick. He literally could not say no to going out. Once I did not see, I did not see you say no. I'm just going to hang at the hotel, guys, and get some sleep. I didn't see that happen. We'd be once. sitting at the bar in between having drinks. He was sniveling and crying in the corner, <laughs> like dying of a flu. Although you two specifically, let's just say that Johnny and Jesse, both you two were like MIA. You guys were like, I don't give a fuck. I am not coming to party with anybody. <laughs> no, yeah, if I like, 
I was dying. I'm, I was yeah, I know. You, you guys were like, you guys were really <laughs> responsible. But um, there was one night in particular at the very end of uh, of the South American tour where uh, Dylan, Jesse, and or sorry, Dilly, Danny, and I were all everybody. I think we met the guys from Bastille down in the down in the bar, mm. and we were all going to go up. And I was literally about to walk away when that whole thing happened. And they're like. Dude, come up. We're all going to hang out in our suite. And I was like... The funny thing, I don't even think it was us that said it to you. It was like no, someone no. else, random. It was like... No, it was the it was the tall British guy from Bastille. The, oh, right, the, right. The guy that They're looks all like British, Russell, but... Yeah. Well, yeah, I know. But the guy that looks like Russell Brand. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, we're all going up there, mate. Let's, let's go. And I was like, fuck yeah. And I was like, like nose running down to my chin. I couldn't breathe. It was 2 o'clock in the morning. And I was like... I, and you dealt with that for a long time, right? You were coughing for about... Four months. Uh, yeah, I had, to have, I had to have uh, like antibiotics, just like you did, Danny. And like, I, I couldn't breathe for months afterwards. I had like bronchitis. But <laughs> <laughs> was it worth it? Yeah, <laughs> I had a really great time that night. <laughs> well, on that note, thank you very. I've got much. a fucking amazing picture of Eric from Young the Giant from that night. I thought you were going to say something else. Oh, no, no. no it's I, I don't know if we can put I will maybe we'll cut this because I don't know if that picture is postable but yeah. well anyway. with that thank you very much Johnny Jonathan David Baxtamala for joining us on this podcast we'll have you back and uh, we'll put some of his best shots of us that we subjectively judge and hate our profile and nose and oh I wish I had combed my beard that day um, but you'll see his work, which you've probably already seen all over our Instagram and stuff. So thanks, Johnny. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, make sure you subscribe on Apple, Stitcher, Google, whatever you're listening on. And check us out at congress.com slash podcast. P-O-D-C-A-S-T. See you guys next week. Bye.